Welcome to the Food and Drink Business Podcast. Your on-the-go bite of the food and beverage industry. Welcome to the Food and Drink Business Podcast. My name is Grant McCarran, and today I'm once again joined by Kim Berry, the editor of Food and Drink Business and the host of this show. G'day, Kim. How are you doing today? Hi, Grant. I'm very well. Cool. Today we are continuing our discussion off episode 50, I guess, with um, Paul Wood, where we were talking about cultured meat and food tech and the future of food. But today we're heading back and sort of looking at, I guess, um, some more other organic matters. (laughs) We're going to be joined by Michelle Stansfield. She's the founder and CEO of Cauldron. It's an agri-tech startup that is set on unlocking the future of food feed and fibre using precision fermentation. We'll get to, you know, what that is. Where Cauldron diverges from other precision fermentation companies is its focus on making production cheaper and faster to move to scale. Now, they're doing that through building a global network of facilities to help develop, prove and commercially scale those new products and ingredients. Its recent successful seed raise of US $7 million is helping Michelle and Cauldron do exactly that. Hi, Michelle. Hi, Kim. How are you? Uh, I'm very well. Now, look, you know, this um, changing the nature of food globally, that's uh, you know, it's just your day job. <laughs> Simple. Yeah. <laughs> let's, um, let's take a step back first just to, to give our um, audience some context. How did you end up in this spot? What was your career before Cauldron? Uh, I am a fermentation scientist and microbiologist by training and I've been commercialising bio-based technologies for going on 20 years. So I've worked on vaccine manufacture, vaccine development, using fermentation for food, fermentation for animal feed products for a very long time. And I've been doing that through a company called Agri-Technology. I was a general manager of Agri-Technology who've been helping companies scale up and industrialise their fermentation technologies for 35 years. Uh, Yeah, so that's been interesting. And what we identified last year alongside Main Sequence Ventures is there's very little capacity for scale-up and manufacturing of fermentation-based technologies in the Asia-Pacific region. And so what we've done is we've started Cauldron, we've acquired the IP and the physical assets out of agri-technology with this seed round, and now we're very quickly scaling to help companies develop products in the food, feed, and fibre space and actually have the capability to manufacture in the region. Okay. And um, now the the very simple question, how? Like, how? (laughs) How are you doing that? Just a couple of big vats you're just putting in, you know, cities around the region or, you know, what's the story? (laughs) When you actually visualise it, it's going to look a lot like a winery or a brewery. There are going to be big stainless steel tanks in regional locations around Australia. And what our technology allows us to do is to build smaller, smarter, more efficient facilities. Oh, right. And what, and a, which basically uncouples um, our ability to decentralize manufacturing. We don't need to build 10 million litre facilities. We can build half a million litre facilities. And so we can build multiple facilities around Australia. And how we plan to 
create this network is by co-locating with existing agricultural or food companies. So we might co-locate with a sugar supplier in far north Queensland. We've recently announced that we're doing a feasibility study to do that in far north Queensland. We may co-locate with a winery that has existing infrastructure, or we may even just co-locate in an area that has very cheap electricity or renewable power. It's fascinating because I think this is one of the things that we that every person we speak to when we're looking at these at these new, you know, fermentation technologies and these and the new sort of food processing production methods is the difficulty in scaling and the and the size that these vats need to be and you know Paul was telling us in episode 50 that the cells are quite sensitive and so the bigger the vat the more risk you have of things going wrong and so is it still using the same technology in the bigger vat, but you're just building more smaller ones? Firstly, I might just differentiate us from what Paul was commenting on. Um, Paul's yep. talking about using cellular culture, so actually yeah. growing the mammalian cells. And they have a different set of challenges to what we do in precision fermentation. Precision fermentation uses yeast, um, algae, bacteria, fungi to produce food and they're a lot more robust than mammalian cells so we are actually able to go to these very big large tanks um and we're doing it it's happening around the world now precision fermentation is is the technology that's currently used to create insulin in very very large tanks in europe so the insulin that you inject or diabetic people inject is actually a product of precision fermentation. But what we're doing is we're adapting that technology to make it applicable for food, animal feed, and for fibres, so building materials and plastics. I know we've um, one of the things um, we've talked about sort of, you know, we know that fermentation has been around for thousands and thousands of years and we can, you know, give thanks for that in terms of beer and things like cheese. <laughs> <laughs> you know, let's all wave Crazy. the flag. <laughs> yes. Let's all wave the flag for fermentation. Um, but I know that when we were writing about when you, you had your the successful seed raise, we were talking about hyper fermentation. So can you sort of explain what that is? I yes, I can try. Um, <laughs> and keeping in mind, I am a scientist, not a communicator necessarily. <laughs> so typically, when you create something from a microbe. You put a very small amount of the microbe into a tank and you let it grow and it doubles and it doubles and it doubles and eventually it runs out of sugar and then it dies or and that's when you harvest it. And during that growth phase, it produces ethanol for, for wine or it might produce things that make cheeses. What we're doing is we actually have a technology where we are able to grow those bugs, but we hold it in that growth phase. So, it almost becomes it's an indefinite thing like you can grow keep it growing oh, forever right. and what that enables us to do is we can get five times the product out of the same size tank as a conventional or a traditional batch fermentation so that again drives down the cost of the product because it becomes more efficient but it also drives down the price of the infrastructure we need to build to be able to create this product that's just genius <laughs> does it make sense <laughs> <laughs> Listen, you're a scientist and you know you're 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 questioning your communication skills and meanwhile I'm the communicator and I'm just going I I think my brain is my brain does understand this. It does. It does. I can. I can. <laughs> I, um yes. That's that's how did that come about? Was that was that your research that you've just done over the last sort of 20 years in in developing it to this point? 
So agri-technology, the founders of agri-technology actually helped build the ICI reactor in the UK in the 1960s. So what that means is it actually was one of the first reactors that was used to make food from fermentation. So they've been doing this for a very long time. So we'll give a shout out to to David McLennan and <laughs> and Polly McLennan. They're our founders. Sure. They're both in their eighties. <laughs> they were the founders wow. of the technology. You and have they, to back up. A, you have to back up a sec because what's the ICI? What's that? The ICI bioreactor is. It's interesting. It's this huge structure in the UK, and it basically grows fungus for food. And it, it was back in the sixties, and the success of the product. It's really the basis of corn and things like that. But they were so far ahead of their time that it never really floated. Wow. But David, David and Polly, they then they stuck to their guns and they have a number of patents in using microbes for food dating back to the 70s. And what they've done is they've realised to get the cost of the microbial fermentation down to be able to produce food, they had to find a better way to do it. And that's this hyperfermentation. And so they developed this over the past 35 years. And there's a lot yeah. of IP around that's held within Cauldron now that really unlocks the fermentation for the food space and really gives us the ability to create food at low cost from fermentation. So what kind of food can you make? Okay, well, we, we are not a product company. We are enabling infrastructure. So at the moment, we are working with companies who are making fats, so fats from fermentation, which can then be included in plant-based food or, or cellular, cellular culture. So is that with, a, with someone or, you know, someone, something like Nourish Ingredients where they're looking at developing plant-based fats that actually have the taste and mouthfeel and other characteristics of an animal fat? Yes, so we are working with Nourish Ingredients and we're, we're happy to make that public. Now, we've spoken about that on a number of occasions. Yeah, they've actually got fats that are changing the mouthfeel and the whole culinary experience um, when you eat a plant-based burger. And we're also working with um, dairy companies to create the proteins that will be included in non-animal-derived milk. Um, we have a relationship where we're trying to work with Ulu who are creating plastic from microbes. Wow. Uh, yeah. And then we've got other companies that we're speaking to at the moment who are making pet food from fermentation. So there's non-animal pet food, but they still have the nutritional requirements. There's re some really, really exciting technologies coming through that we're working with companies. Yeah, that is, uh, <laughs> it's just mind boggling. It is, but it, it's it's a huge push from an ecosystem that needs to include the plant-based companies or the cellular culture companies to create the mass. And then we have these ingredients companies who are really improving those products. When you're looking at fermenting, you know, a fungus or a bacteria or whatever it is, how long does that take? Is it <laughs> hours? Is it a day? Is it a week? It really depends on the microorganism. So some of the yeast, so there's a very popular yeast called Picchia and it actually doubles its population in 40 minutes. So it's a very quick process. However, then we have some, some filamentous fungi that look like little stars. They grow a lot slower. So well, how we manufacture them, yeah, very how we manufacture them, different microorganisms depends on really how quickly they grow, but still a lot quicker than growing a cow or, or a sheep. Um, <laughs> I'm not anti-agriculture. I am a cattle farmer myself, um, but it is a, a lot quicker in nature. And then do specific um, microbes 
are there specific channels that they go to? So, you know, you can only use, I don't know, fungi for this sort of application or is it just, you know, how long's a piece of string? You can just apply it across the board. Um, no, that's not specific. So basically there's a number of, we call them chassis or, or organisms that people use to create these products. They engineer those organisms to create a specific fat or a protein. And the choice of those microbes is dependent on how effective they are at, at creating the protein or the fats. For example, a yeast might not actually fold a protein, a bovine protein properly as it makes it, where a filamentous fungi may. So these very, very clever scientists at the research um, institutes, they work that out and then we just grow it. So all power to them. We just grow it. (laughs) (laughs) I have to say it is something that I am amazed by every day in this space, like in food, food tech and ag tech and scientists and, you know, food technologists, they're just remarkable humans. So smart. Absolutely. And that's the thing. It's not just a matter of growing a protein, Like you have to make sure it actually is folding properly. So proteins all fold up in, in these 3D conformations. And those scientists at CSIRO, at the universities, they actually sit there and they model it and they have a look at it and to make sure it's actually going to work. So they're not just saying we're going to make milk proteins. They're actually doing functionality testings to make sure that they're nutritionally sound. Um, I saw a tweet the other day about post-translation modifications of bovine proteins from fermentation. And these scientists are solving for that. They're not just making something that is kind of the same. They're making bioidentical and identically functional ingredients. They're very, very clever. They're very clever. (laughs) (laughs) I understand that the seed raise was the largest for a female-led startup. Second. And uh, I I mean, that's just, A, that's tremendous. But I also know that the report, um, this year's report into Australian startups showed some really woeful sort of figures around investment in and backing of um, female-led startups. And so is this, what's been your experience? Um, My experience has been entirely positive. Um, I have some amazing supporters in the VC field, but we created an ecosystem. So before I created Cauldron, we created an ecosystem with some very, very capable women, Michelle Colgrave from CSIRO, Camilla Roberts from Edinburgh, have really led this thing. And I haven't had any sort of indication that being a woman would cause any issues, but the figures, the figures are there. Um, I think I can't remember the exact figures that, but female founders represent twenty percent of founders, but only 0.7 percent of actual money raised, or something along those lines. Yeah, the figures so, tell a story. Yeah, so one in three top venture um, capital companies did not invest in a female founder in twenty twenty two, and only ten percent of equity capital raised was in female founded startups. Uh, even though female participation in deals increased um, to 23%. A third of angel and pre-seed funding was received by women, uh, which was up from 21%. So that's a bit of a bit of a jump. But I think it was the percentage of total capital invested in startups with at least one woman founder was 25% in 2020, 21% in 2021, and 10% in 2022. 
That's an interesting. Last time I looked, when the statistic goes down, <laughs> when the percentage goes down, that's not great. No, it's not great. It's not great. But um, it's certainly not my experience. I, if everyone's struggling at the moment, female or male led or whoever yeah. leads it, it's yeah. certainly everyone's struggling to raise at the moment. Um, I am in a in an amazing industry. I've never felt that I've been um, held back by being female um, in the whole biotech industry. Even when I was in vaccine manufacture, it's been a very progressive industry and I believe STEM is. We've actually made, as a society, a concerted effort to increase women in STEM over the last 10 to 15 years. So it's not yeah. certainly not my experience, but I'm not going to argue with the stats. It's there. Um, we were very fortunate with our raise. We were very much oversubscribed given the nature of our business enabling a number of other portfolio companies. But I'm not going to rest on my laurels. I know that it's <laughs> going to be challenging going forward given the current investment ecosystem, but I would hope that the fact that I'm a female founder won't influence going forward. So we're working with Selena Chow from Horizon Ventures. Um, she was involved in the investment and she's very much a supporter of women founders and women in, in deep tech. So I'm sure that played a part. She's an incredible woman and um, is investing in a lot of female-led companies. So there is obviously support from from Horizon Ventures in Horizons Ventures in that. Yeah. And I think, you know, it, it stands to reason the the adage that um, you can't be what you can't see. And so when you have someone like yourself or other like um, other women who are in those positions of successful startups that if you build it, they will come. But still, yes, we have a long way to go. It's a bit, it's a challenge. Absolutely. Hopefully we're at a, an inflection point and we start seeing Hopefully. More, more women coming through. Yes, yes, let's. That'd I certainly really nice. see a lot of very capable women out there. Yeah. Very capable, particularly in the science industry. It's just yeah. they need to have the confidence to take the jump and leave leave the research institutions and and have a go. You look at Anna Altachi from Nourish. She was at Syro and now she's a founder and director at Nourish Ingredients. That took a lot of guts for her to leave that highly comfortable position at Syro and have a go. We need more Anna Altachis in this world. And hopefully her and I can show people that men are the, aren't the only ones who can jump. Yes. <laughs> so what now? What's the future looking like? What's the next steps for Cauldron? We're going to continue working with a number of our existing companies out of our demonstration facility in Orange. We have Australia Pacific's largest precision fermentation facility here in Orange. And in parallel, we're working with a number of state governments and companies to identify where our first manufacturing facility will be. As we discussed before, um, our technology enables us to build smaller, smarter factories at less cost. So we're looking to build a network of facilities around Australia. Of course, we've got the the announcement with the Palaszczuk government where we're looking at building in Mackay in far north Queensland alongside the sugar industry up there. We have a number of conversations going with a number of other companies as well and another a number of the governments. We're getting a lot of support from the state governments with respect to building, this, building yeah. facilities around Australia. It's really exciting and it's been an absolute joy talking to you. And we will definitely catch up again to find out just how uh, world domination plans are uh, unfolding. <laughs> <laughs> and it must be, we need to note 
that it is a global company. We have a, an American company already. Uh, my co-founder is American and we're speaking with the, the US government at the moment to build biomanufacturing capability in the US as well. So it's oh, going to be huge. It's going to be huge. <laughs> that is, it is actually awesome. Thanks so much for coming along to Food and Drink Businesses podcast and having a chat with us. It's uh, been fantastic. Thanks for having me, Kim. I appreciate your time. Well, thanks, Michelle. Thanks, Kim. And of course, thanks to our audience for joining us today. Don't forget, if you enjoyed what you've uh, been hearing today, you can like us on iTunes or your favorite podcatcher as this helps others discover our show. We'll be back in the not too distant future with another informative discussion. And they are very informative lately. (laughs) But until then, have a great day. You've been listening to the Food and Drink Business Podcast, produced by Southern Skies Media on behalf of Food and Drink Business, owned and published by Yaffa Media. The views of the people featured on this podcast do not necessarily represent those of Food and Drink Business, Yaffa Media, or the guest's employer. The contents are copyright by Yaffa Media. If you wish to use any of this podcast's audio, please contact us via our website or send an email to editor at foodanddrinkbusiness.com.au. You can subscribe to this podcast via your preferred platform and read all the latest news on Australia's food and beverage industry at foodanddrinkbusiness.com.au. You've been listening to a Yappa Media Podcast. Southern Skies Media.